Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. My next guest on your cron is Tarun Verma. Tarun is a doctor of pharmacy and a filmmaker. He began working for a large corporation, quickly becoming burned out with the corporate life after several years. After reading books about business, Tarun started buying up businesses to create a passive income. Tarun later used his experience as a compounding pharmacist to formulate his own brand of sports injury recovery cream and started a company called Truth Botanicals, which is currently available through Amazon and Walmart.com. The flagship product is called Deep Knee. Tarun, welcome to your cron. Hey, thank you for having me, Scott. Oh, it's great to have you, and I've really been looking forward to getting into your story. A lot to unpack here. Where is a good place to start your extraordinary story? To start at the beginning. I don't know if we got the time for that. Absolutely. Um, what, what part stood out to you? Let's start from there. Okay. Um, well, just... Going from a doctor of pharmacy to a filmmaker, of course, you're still in in a pharmacy-related business, and we'll jump into that right. in a little more detail. But maybe start uh, with um, with your career as a pharmacist. Sure. Yeah. So um, you know, back at uh, undergrad when I was at UT, I always wanted to make movies. That that was just the dream to do. Uh, being from a minority background, you know, my parents really frowned upon. Doing that, I told them I wanted to be an RTF major my first semester uh, after I came home, and uh, I mean they ri- ridiculed me heavily. I mean it, it was it was bad. They were like, "No, we're not going to pay for college if you're going to go and go get a radio, television, film degree." Um, you know, they they go, "We don't know anybody in the film business. How are you going to get into the film business?" Uh, and I didn't think about it at the time. I was 18 years old, right? I was like, "I just want to make movies. If if I could do this." Um, that would be fantastic. And so I had, a, I had buddies of mine go, well, if, if this is something you really want to do, dip your foot in it. Try it. So I wrote a screenplay. Uh, three months later, I was done with my first feature screenplay. Got it. It was done. It was a romantic comedy. Um, and then what I did was I started looking into how to, how to make it. You, luckily, University of Texas is a major art school. I mean, they, 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 they fund stuff like this. So I did get about three or $4,000 back when I was... 18, 19 years old to make my movie. Not a lot of money. Uh, but, you know, it's a student film, so you could have you could have pulled it off. And so I started doing it. I was like, Let, let's go. I started going in all these uh, different student association uh, organizations going, hey, we're casting, we need people. And I was solely going to use all students for it. Um, and then, uh, you know, you usually have alumni that are sitting in the back of these meetings. And there, there were two gentlemen who came and they go, we used to do film. Uh, you know, back in India and Pakistan and, and things like that. And they go, give the money back to UT. We'll front you 10K. Let's turn this into a, you know, profitable venture. I didn't understand all that at that point, but I knew that I just tripled my budget. <laughs> so I was like, I got three times as much more money. Now, yeah, I lose the UT backing of it, but I got 10K. So we made this film and um, this was, you know, almost 16 years ago. So we shot these things on mini DV tapes. You know, it was not shot on the amazing digital formats that we have now. Uh, digital then was still kind of a newer space and, and it looked different. It looked more video-y than it does now. Now some of the digital stuff, you know, the cameras and stuff I use, you can't tell it's not film. I mean, it looks amazing. So we shot that film and, um, you know, it was my first time making a film. So obviously the film made sense. The film had a story, the first, second, and third act that that worked, but the film was still far from being good, right? Uh, you had student actors and, and things like that, and of course, I didn't have any training as a director at the time, but the movie was a success for that purpose. Now, afterwards, uh, there was a lot of infighting that happened amongst the uh, the money guys, um, you know, and so because of it, the film never released, and so my hopes of being the next Spielberg kind of fell apart, because I thought after this film, I'd get another one, and... And I'd never have to finish school. That was that was the dream back in the days. I'd never have to go, you know. I never have to go to pharmacy school. I never have to go to medical school. Uh, but that didn't happen. And my dad goes, 
what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I have to go to, he wanted me to go to med school. I, I knew I didn't have the fortitude to go to med school. It takes a certain breed of person to go through med school. Um, and then also, uh, the next thing was my dad goes, you have to go into some field that makes money. So pharmacy was like a good compromise. Him and I shook on it and go, I went, you know, pharmacy is half the amount of time. I still come out with a six figure salary. And he goes, that checks my boxes. Um, so go, go do it then. So I went to pharmacy school and I, to go through pharmacy school, that's intense too. That's not easy at all. It's a doctorate. It's incredibly tough. So I never had time to really do film and I, and with the bad experience of that first feature, I just didn't think it was in the cards for me. I was like, I just got to let it die. And, um, you know, that, that's what I did. I, um, I went to pharmacy school, didn't do film and that was it. And I came out of school and, um, you know, first thing you come out with a six figure salary, you're going, I want nice things. You start buying nice cars. I went to Dallas. I went to go live in sexy places and live in, you know, downtown and things like that. And I went, now I have the money to do what I want to do. I'm going to start making movies again. Um, then the real world hits you, you know, once all your bills are gone, you don't really have as much as you think you do. You know, I had a student loan payment that was really the size of probably a condo. Right. <laughs> and so I owed a condo without having to show one for it. Right. For mm. with how much my student loans cost. Um, you know, I was driving an Audi, I was living here, I was doing this. And it was like, there isn't much discretional income when you're done, you know, and that speaks to a bigger truth about when we get, when we start talking about business, $100,000 in this day and age just isn't what it used to be. Um, you know, most, most people never hit that. So I don't want to say that that's, you know, you know, $100,000 is nothing. It's, it's a lot of money. But in this day and age, when you have all these expenditures, it's, it, you can't go travel the world and this and that unless you're sizing down, right? Your All life relative. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I, I went back home and I was like, okay, let me try to downsize some of my life. I need some more income. And I still couldn't get enough to where I could make movies at the level I wanted to. Because you get what you pay for in film, right? Yeah. Um, you can scrap it together, and I've been scrapping, you know, I made shorts here and there, and you scrap them all together, and you go through the goodwill of others to kind of get stuff shot, and it, but it's never that great. Yeah. But when you start putting real money behind it, that's when the quality of your work just, just, or at least for me, monumentally shot up. The minute I started, the more and more money I put into my projects, I was like, there's a direct correlation to it. Because before, I'd always take it hard on myself and go, my movies are just crap. And it's like, well, they're not crap. It's just you need to put money behind it, um, especially if you're not as skilled in every position. Now, if you're a Robert Rodriguez type and you can shoot, cut, edit yourself everything and you have a high skill level in all of those things, great. But I didn't. So I had to rely on skill positions. Like to this day, I am not a DP. I'm not a director of photography. That is not something I can do. I can't light. I did learn to edit though over the years. So I'm a pretty decent editor. Um, and so I'm able to save costs and stuff by editing. But, um, but no, there's still some skill positions that you have to pay for to get that level of quality if that's what you're seeking. Um, and so then I realized I need to make more money. I got to figure this out. And corporate world, you know, they, they tether your, you know, your raises. You don't get, at least in pharmacy and healthcare, you don't get these amazing bonuses and whatever that, you, you know, you, the finance guys out there do or the marketing guys can do. Right. So then I realized I need to become a businessman. Uh, my wife's side of the family are all entrepreneurs. And when I started seeing how these guys were living, it changed my mentality completely. I go, there's no way I, because I started getting down on myself. I'm going, you know, even as a pharmacist, I, I can't accomplish what I want to accomplish. I, you know, I have to build generational wealth for my family, for my future. You know, my dad put everything he had into me and my brother's education. So, you know, he's not sitting on some sort of million dollar fund or anything. Um, he never bought properties. He was never a business guy. He was, uh, you know, a multi degree guy and he's Mr. Schoolman. He's, he's an, he's an intellectual. He's not a business guy at all. And so because of that, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make up for some of that ground that, you know, uh, he wasn't able to get. So, um, then I started looking into passive income businesses, any type of business. I just, I went head into it. And again, whenever you do this, you have to stop film for a while. Right? So in my journey, I've had to stop film and put it on the back burner only to go, this will, funnel me forward much quicker. If I can become a better businessman, I'll do better in film. I'll be quicker in film later on, rather than me kind of try to tough it out at this stage. So I took, took to business. I learned everything I could, read all the books, the podcasts, 
started applying it. That's the biggest thing about business is it's not about how much you read. You could read a ton of books. It doesn't mean anything. You got to get out there and do it. So I've lost a ton of money and made a ton of money. And that's just how you, that's just what you do. You know what I mean? To really become a really good businessman, you, you just, you don't worry about the theory. And that's hard because when you're like, uh, and you come from my background, which is all studying and the way my dad is, my dad's a guy who think a million times before he makes a move. And that doesn't work for businessmen. No, you got to just jump in sometimes and just go, F it, I'll figure it out. You know what I mean? That's the mentality you got to have. And so, um, you know, that that's kind of in short, from the beginning to now, that's the uh, summary of my, my story of where I am now. Great start. Great start. Um, boy, there's, there's a lot of follow-up questions to that. So let's get into some of that. Um, what... What kind of books did you read to become educated in building a business? And, and I think um, what you say is, is so true. A lot of it is just instincts. I mean, you can read, mm -hmm. um, but if you try to follow, in my opinion anyway, if you read anything like a sales book or a business book and you try to do exactly what they say, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. Because to me, reading starts to get your mind thinking. Yep. But if ultimately, you have to go with with your instincts and like you say you don't have time to to analyze and, and all these things so but having said that what kind of books did you study so the first book that um my uncle gave me so my uncle was a business guy he, he was not very um he didn't have the degrees he, he was not very well educated he came to this country and he just he just started hustling you know and he started building stuff completely 180 of my dad my dad came here and was like you know, Colorado School of Mines, degrees, degrees, degrees. He was like, that's my, that's the recipe for success for him. My uncle on the other hand was very, very different. He hustled it up. And so when I talked to him and I went, yeah, uncle, I, um, I want something different for my life. I want to understand how this is done. What can I do? He gave me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Really classic book, right? <clears throat> and he goes, don't get hung up on every word. But he goes, read it. And then come back to me and tell me what you learned. And I read the book and it was just, it hit home to me because the rich dad was my uncle. Poor dad was my dad, right? The, the really educated guy. And, you know, it's not like my dad did terrible. He did, he did well in his life. But, he, you know, he, I don't think he ever eclipsed like, you know, 100K in his life. Um, but he was always stable. He always had a job. He always provided for us, you know. So, you, you know, you're not going to say that um, that's not a successful path because it is. But what that book did was... And I think the purpose of that book, if you, if you really want to analyze it, is it's supposed to turn off, it's supposed to turn a certain switch on in your brain, the way that you think, the way that a rich dad thinks versus the way a poor dad thinks, understanding the mindset, not exactly what these guys did to get where they got to, it's the mindset shift that you have to make. And I went, I've been looking at money the wrong way my entire life. Mm. You know, I, you know, my dad taught me to look at money as something you save, you save, you hold on to it, you don't let it go. And, um, you know, uh, the rich dad's like, never hold on to it, you know, always invest it, always do something with it, right? Um, stock markets, whatever, whatever, let the money work for you. That was a concept that a poor dad doesn't think about. He thinks you need money to get what you need, but you need to save up as much as you can. Put it all in your bank, put it all in your bank. And that's what I'd always learn. Put it in the bank, put it in the bank, pay off your debt, have no debt. The rich dad's like, let the debt ride. Let the debt ride. This country's built on debt. And I, these were all things that over the years I've come to learn and understand the nuances of what all this stuff is, right? We can say this, but not a lot of people in their young years understand this stuff. When they say, like, this country's built on debt, why? The richest men in this country collect debt on debt on debt because as long as your cash flow is still going up, it's okay. And as long as you're able to cover your uh, notes of whatever you're buying, it's okay to let the debt rise keep doing that very few people are completely paid off in every way and are just kind of living Matthew McConaughey hey 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 right so um so the, that that book was huge and then he gave me some stock market books uh Jim Cramer that's where he introduced me to Jim Cramer and stock market still to this day is not something I fully understand and he goes and the number one thing he told me from that was if something doesn't make sense don't do it don't put money there he goes if it doesn't make sense to you don't do it. And over the years, I've tried to understand the stock markets, the way they work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just doesn't fundamentally understand to me. Like I bought in stocks here and there. I have stocks, but I don't, I don't throw a ton of money into it because I just don't fundamentally understand it. 
Land? Oh yeah, I understand land. I understand how that works. Flipping land, homes, equity, and that and that way, the way the banking system works whenever you buy property, cash out, refis, yada, yada, yada. That's my daily life now. I understand that stuff. That made sense to me. And that's what you have to gravitate towards is whenever you learn stuff in business, what clicks to you and what doesn't? And he's like, don't force yourself to try to get into a niche or a groove if you don't fully understand it. And he, he said the same thing. He goes, I, I don't touch stocks. I do real estate. He goes, real estate to me makes sense all day long, A, B, C, D, all the way down to Z. I can do this all day long. I got another uncle. He doesn't do real estate. He just does stocks. That's what he understands. And he's made a killing in the stock markets. And he'll sit there and he'll go, put your money in money markets and this and that. And he, you know, he gets real technical. And anybody who's really into stocks will go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you should be doing. So the great kind of gift in my life is I've had so much, so many uncles that are in various facets of things that I've learned from, right? Uh, stock markets, this and that. And so everyone's got a different model on how they've built their wealth. And so there's no one way to do it. And so after a while, I went from the books to the people. I went, forget the books. The books gave me the introduction. They gave me the fundamentals. Now start to talk to all of these different people. And so, you know, people like yourselves, I sit in front of everyone and I just talk. I wanna know, I'm a, be a student of the game. You know, I, I may understand a lot of everything, but I don't run into any place and just start, you know, I know what to do, I know this and that, right? Learn. And that's that's been key for the last few years for me. I just learned from everyone. Yeah, and I don't care how old you get. Um, I'm close to 60, but I totally believe that learning is, is a constant endeavor. And <laughs> I was thinking about my dad. Uh, he's you know very well-educated guy as well. Um, but, uh, you know, he was not a businessman. And so mm -hmm. his business advice to me was the first thing was, get a credit card, get a gas credit card so you can start establishing credit so you can buy a house mm. and then keep that house forever and you can retire on what you sell it for. Yep, my, yep. my dad has said the same thing. <laughs> it sounds so simple. You know, Pay but, off your uh, house. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've uh, been in about five houses since then. You know, just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you still have the equity and I understand what he said and you know, but it was a different world back then, completely. Very much, completely. very much. And, mm -hmm. and, and he, he did, uh, he gave me what he could yep. with the resources that he had. Absolutely. So, um, and a lot of that stuff I, I still retain today. You know, I, I, we talked about debt, you know, personal debt, I try to uh, keep under control. Absolutely, you should. Yeah, but yeah. you got to have some debt to grow a business. Absolutely. No doubt about mm -hmm. it, no doubt about it. Um, so you got into to flipping businesses. That's right. Yes. Yes. Um, that's something very recent for me. Um, you know, when, when we talk business, you have, to, you have to ask yourself, well, what are your strengths in business? You know, business is such a broad term. What, what, what does that mean? What, what are you good at? For me, it was always management. Through my time in, in the pharmaceutical world, I was always a pharmacy manager or, or I always had a senior position. So I knew how to manage staff. And I was always really good at it because... I've been working since I was 16, on and off, right? Kohl's, uh, Chick-fil-A, right? Like all the fast foods. I've seen bad bosses. And I've seen bad bosses even in corporate when I came out with a you know, doctorate. And so when I got to be in managerial roles, I understood that I was going to behave a certain way. I was going to treat people better. How can you still treat people with respect and still get efficiency out of them, right? That is the key to management. And not many people understand that. Um, and so I just kind of was very intuitive on what I had seen. And so when I've gotten in there, I've always had a really great relationship for the people that have been a part of the team that I've worked with. So when it came down to businesses, um, you know, the number one thing in the last few years is I think our generation now is chasing passive income. We're chasing a lifestyle rather than, you know, maybe 10, 20, 15 years ago, people are chasing money. They just want to be rich, 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 rich. Now it's about, you don't need to be super rich. You just don't need to do nothing and make money, right? Like if you can make 150000 sitting on a couch, maybe putting in 15, 20 hours a week, that is now the new goal for our, our, our time, right? Our time is now precious. Back in the day, it was, you know, my parents, our parents' generation, it was just you work, 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 or work. The generation after that was kind of like money. You know, how can I make more, 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 more money? How can I gain assets? Our thing now is how do I get my time back, right? So we can pursue some of the things we wanted to pursue. And so we 
started buying up passive income businesses. We put a management system in place and then we are looking to now, and again, we're just now starting this. Like in the, in the pandemic, I've, I've bought in a few businesses and um, I've actually done, you know, the, the pandemic, anytime some sort of uh, off kilt thing happens in the world, there's a lot of opportunities to be had. Um, so I've been very fortunate and blessed that during the pandemic, we did quite well because I took advantage. I took some risks, some very calculated risks. And now I'm seeing what I can do with those properties and businesses that I've bought. And I'm going, okay, well, we could just run them. That, that's fine too. Um, but now I'm finding myself having bought in a bunch of these going, oh, now my time's kind of gone. Like I have to devote a lot more time to these than I, than I originally thought. So now we're going, if we put a management system in place, we fix everything up, we get everything running the way it should. Because uh, why would someone sell a business? Yeah, it's probably not in good shape. It's probably been beaten up. Uh, there's personnel issues. So we come in, we fix all that, and then we're now we're looking to kind of flip that to investors who are looking for passive income opportunities. So we kind of do the dirty work there of getting it all done, and then they take over, and the money's coming, and all they have to do is just sort of delegate one, two, and three, and that's it. You know. So that that's been kind of successful, and so we're kind of rolling that out over the next few years as part of what my management company is trying to do is we're trying to look at businesses and go, who'd want to buy this? Under what circumstance would they want to buy this if said ABC things were already in place? You know, like, wouldn't you, would you buy the dry cleaners if it was already running and you didn't have to really do much or something, you know, like it's, it's there or storage units. Those are really great passive income uh, things out there. Um, recession proof. I mean, COVID. COVID has dramatically, should have dramatically changed the way you see business. I think every businessman, if they haven't shifted their mentality post-COVID, then I think they've done a disservice to themselves and they're behind the mark a little bit. So through COVID, I've reevaluated the way I move, the way I've, the vision I have for the future of what I need to do. Because if you would have asked me two years ago, what, what's one of your pipe dreams? I would have said, I want to open up a restaurant. I love food. I love, I love people that look at food as an art. So I wanted to put, you know, my money, my backing behind an up and coming chef. That was like a pipe dream of mine. Now I don't. <laughs> I don't ever want to open up a restaurant after the pandemic. And so I look at, you know, recession proof businesses now uh, more as a commodity or as you call them, boring businesses. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So ones that make sense to flip. Yep. I want to go back to a term that. I came across, and I looked this up because I'd never heard this term. I thought it was interesting that I mentioned in the intro. Trim, what is a compounding pharmacist, and how did that background help you in developing what we're going to talk about, the sports cream, here in a few minutes? Absolutely. So compounding pharmacist, now this goes back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, before medicine turned entirely homogenous. Um, you know, the, the idea is that whenever a doctor gives you a prescription for something, anything, thyroid problem, whatever, you take it to a chemist, right? In the back then they call them chemists and they would custom make a medication for you, right? To your specific levels, right? Because nowadays we take Advil and Tylenol, um, but really, you know, depending on what you get, you stub your toe or you have knee issues, you, you know, you take one Advil for both of those scenarios. You don't need a whole Advil if you stub a toe or if you sort of cut your hand a little bit versus something like you jam your knee into the ground, you were running and you fell or you fell off of a bike. So all medications shouldn't be made equal, but because of the scale and the way our world is, the medications have to be made that way. So compounding pharmacies, what they do is they provide, a, they provide that, so that stopgap solution in between. So you see it a lot with veterinary medicines. There's not a lot of medicines for dogs, cats, et cetera. Uh, you have parrots, birds, et cetera out there. So you pharmacists have to compound them. So, you know, we had a lot of um, dogs that would come through and they wouldn't take medication. So we would sneak them in dog treats and we would formulate the, the dosages exactly. We had um, cats that had uh, a fear when like thunder and lightning would happen. And so you compound these medications uh, so that they'll properly take them. And human beings, same thing. If you have some sort of complicated disease state or uh, we had a large amount of the uh, Jewish population as well as the Muslim population, they can't do uh, gelatin, which are in capsules. So we had to find gelatin-free capsules to put them in. And so it's customized medicine. It's been around uh, more than likely most people have never needed customized medicine in that sense. But to be honest, that is the true form of what pharmacy is. It, it was never supposed to be that you come get a cookie cutter pill. It was always, you come to us, we make you something custom tailored to you 
and without over-medicating you and without under-medicating you, getting you at that right dose you need to. So yeah, as a compounding pharmacist, we started doing all that. I learned uh, it's a lot like cooking if you ever cook. There's a lot of measuring, weighing, uh, exact measurements to do. You're heating things up. You're making gelatins, gummies, capsules, uh, creams, which kind of leads into what, what, the, what Truth Botanicals became. And um, yeah, it, it's been fun. It's like Legos. You're playing. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So talk about Deep Knee. Ah. We've got it right here. Deep Knee, there it is. Perfect. So this one came from the need to, well, really, my partner and I, uh, we're both weekend warriors. You know, we work out a lot, um, especially as a pharmacist. I, I believe in health being a big one, and, and, and my genetic uh, disposition in my family has been great. So I got to work twice as hard just to, just to be half as fit. And so running is a big one. I run a lot. I run marathons. My partner, he's a big biker. And, you know, um, maybe you could kind of share with me when you kind of hit a wall. But for me, that was around 30. My ball, my body started hitting a wall. I couldn't, I started to realize I couldn't do the things that I, I needed to do. And sometimes you just wake up going, why the hell do I just need an Advil just because? Like, my back hurts. My body hurts. What is this, right? Um, and then, so knees, you know. I, I've always had kind of issues with the knees on, on because of that. And um, so did my partner. And I went, let me gear the cream towards that. And so we are directly competing with products like Bengay, BioFreeze, Asper Cream, these guys. Um, but when you look on the back of these things, these products are really cheap. And so I saw an opportunity to create something far more natural, far more potent, and um, just something that's an overall better quality of a product. So Deep Knee has menthol in it. Menthol is the magic sauce to this whole thing. That's what Bengay is. That's what uh, Biofreeze is. It's menthol. We have higher amounts of menthol, I believe, in our products than they do. Um, they have so many different types, so it's not uh, you know all one. But I also formulate my cream to have goat's milk lotion is the base. So it's very nourishing to the skin. Um, some of these other competitors are gels, and gels are much cheaper products. Mm. So that goat's milk lotion is incredibly hydrating to the skin. Uh, menthol is incredibly impactful, but you can't have too much menthol because then it kind of burns your eyes and whatnot. And so I've been doing a lot of research in the natural space over the, few, over the last few years. And there are actually there are oils in nature that are proven to take down inflammation, peppermint, wintergreen, um, eucalyptus and things like this actually have cooling powers. Cause you don't, you know, when you create a product, you don't want to throw stuff into it just cause it's like, Oh, that sounds snazzy. That sounds cool. We want to do that. I wanted actual clinical evidence in there. So I became super hyper nerd when it came to this stuff. And I went, we're going to do it. Let's do it right. Let's really make this a better product. And so we can reduce the amount of menthol in our product by putting this oil blend in there because that's actually going to turbocharge the menthol. So instead of putting in 8 to 10% menthol in the product, we can put 6% and the oils will do the rest. And now you're not going to have the side effects of being overly mentholated or, you know, a lot of people say, you know, menthol you know, smells like my grandma or my grandpa, right? So we give it a higher end scent because of it. And so this botanical oil blend, we've carefully formulated it. It does actually take down inflammation on its own. So when you pair it with menthol, I mean, it's, it's just been great. And the reviews on Amazon have been so far amazing. Uh, products don't usually hold up to four and a half to five stars. This has. So it's just been a testament to it just works. Yeah. So well, I'm excited to try it. And you kind of asked me about uh, the process of aging and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And yeah, it, it starts early. I actually ran a couple of marathons back in the late 80s. And um, I read an interesting book. It's called Younger at 70. And it's co-authored by a man that's 70 and his physician. Hmm. And his phys physician gives him advice and the guy tries it and they discuss it in the book. Well, one of the takeaways I got from that, and this is, uh, I read this after I stopped running. I stopped running, um, I think I was in my 20s even, and still just uh, a lot of pain and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, this book kind of explained that um, archaeologists, discovered that we're not really as humans designed to run long distances mm -mm. we're designed to walk long mm. distances um eight miles i think it specifically said to to go out now the reason we can run is to get away from predators yep sprinting, sprinting. is actually so interval sprinting and things like that mm -hmm. uh, i thought that was all very interesting but uh as i've aged you know my workout uh changes almost every year and now it's just yep. a it's a blend of 
yoga and martial arts and you know strength and but and uh, biometrics and all that so I, I kind of blend all that together and you know just really pay attention more to what I eat pliability <laughs> pliability yeah. it, that's something that I've noticed because I, I used to lift a lot of weights I was part of that generation where we were just heavy lifters yeah. and I noticed I was losing flexibility yeah. and now more than anything that's what that's what I crave so I've changed my workouts to going well okay may not want as much definition but I just want to be able to turn and move the way I could move when I was 25 and so I focus on a lot of that so yoga being a big one um, I mean Tom Brady has been sort of the testament to what you yeah, do, do what age. that guy's doing because it's obviously working it's working <laughs> immensely well his yeah. his diet is huge diet being a massive big one right uh, you know, so that, that's, that's been a big focus for me and then pliability. And so, like you said, every few years I've been changing up my workouts too. It's, there's no one size fits all, you know, you get on the internet and there's some guy telling you, you gotta be doing this or that. And it's like, mm, depending on your body type, not really. Yeah. Same with the diet. You know, what diet works for you may not work for me. It's just our genetics and things like that. Right. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, yeah. No, the aging yeah. thing, man. Yeah, sucks. And I, yeah, <laughs> and I, uh, I kind of shut it down for a couple of weeks every year. Just uh, don't exercise at all. I eat whatever I want to, just to kind of remind me why it is so good to yeah. exercise and stuff because and eat well. Because number one, eating junk food is kind of fun for a few days, but then it starts tasting like junk food. Yep. And what's interesting, I think, is uh, I injured my back back in '92, which kind of got me into a whole new way of strength training. Um, but if I lay off those two weeks, my back will start getting sore. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I realized too. Your body we, craves we're, movement. We're designed, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. We're designed as humans to, to move. And yep. if we stop that, uh, bad things start to happen. Um, going back to the filmmaking. So you're, you're telling me the story about being at UT and your dad wants you to do this and you wanted to be in film and, mm -hmm. and boy, Matthew, you mentioned McConaughey earlier and his green light story just popped in my head. You know, his yep. dad wanted him to be a, an attorney, I think. And, you know, he went another direction. So all that's to say, uh, Turin, I think you're on a good path. Thank <laughs> you. I hope so. You're, I really hope you're so. following, uh, uh, you know, somebody uh, pretty special in that business. So uh, we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeBon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeBon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeBon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeBon at sold at Pitney Properties. Com. But I want to go back to um, what you mentioned that you started with the screenwriting process. And I've heard, you know, the, the screenplay, of course, is the backbone of the, of the film, right? It's the story yep. behind it all. Did you enjoy that process of, of screenwriting? I did. And that's the thing that has been sort of my golden star in filmmaking is I am a writer first. The directing thing, I think I'm still getting it down. I'm leveling up with each film I make. Everything's getting better and better and better. But you know, 10 years ago, if you read some of the stuff I was writing, because I would write therapeutically and I'd stick it on a shelf during pharmacy school. Start pharmacy school is incredibly uh, stressful, so I just write. You know, I'd have stories all the time come to me and go, okay, I'll write this in my spare time. And when it was done, just throw it on a shelf. Don't ever touch it again. And um, this, the writing has always been really good. There's, I've just had a knack for it. In this business, when you're a creative, something comes to you. 
you know, some something or another. You know, in business and all these other things in the world, you learn and, and through skill building, you can figure it out. In the arts, there's some things that you just gravitate towards. You have a knack for it. Like music, not my jam. I cannot do music. I see guitars everywhere. Sounds like you probably have a musical talent to you. Am I, am I kind of right on that? Uh, well, some people might say talent's a stretch, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for at least bringing up that word. No, Rob, yeah. it's, a great, it's a great setup. I it's, love it's, all it's, the it's great. It's great therapy. I mean, like anything, anything yeah. that redirects your mind from your problem to something that you enjoy, like writing or filmmaking, I'm sure it has that same. It's, it's pure. Writing yeah. is pure. And that's the beautiful thing because there's nobody there to corrupt it. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about actors. We're not talking about anybody. It's you sitting down. It's you and the page. And you write everything that's up here. You yeah. write that story as the way you want it. If you want to write something very real or realistic to the world going on, great. You want to write some. I have always written it to the way where I want the world to be a little bit different. So I write my characters to be in this sort of wor like world B is what I call it. In a different world. If people were to behave and act a little bit differently, they would, they would act like this in my world. Um, and I'm a big dialogue guy. I love dialogue. Dialogue is my jam. So, you know, when I first started my... Um, my uh, the people that I looked up to the most in this business, it was uh, Kevin Smith, because I was really young at the time. So I loved his little snappy, witty, you know, it was very crass humor. I love that stuff. And it was very personable. And then as I grew older and I started to learn filmmaking deeper and deeper and deeper, then I moved into, you know, then you move into, the, obviously, you know, in the filmmaking world, Tarantino's a god. So you see the way that he writes, and it's just so, just different. It's different. Mm -hmm. And you start to go... Okay, well, as a writer, like, how can I get make my voice different? And then you then you start to learn fundamentals, and you move from Tarantino to Aaron Sorkin, who's just a solid, amazing writer. You know, he's not going to give you some some really savant dialogue or anything the way Tarantino does, where you're like, people don't behave that way. No, no, no. Sorkin writes the way people act, but he just does it so beautifully. I mean, there's a master hand. So those three guys, I've studied their films from a from a script standpoint because I love writing. And it's so therapeutic. The rest of filmmaking is not therapeutic. It is stressful. It's stressful because you got so many people involved, right? But it's not stressful when it's just you and the page. And so I love writing more than anything. I think I enjoy that process the most. And because of that, there's something about it. I only want to direct the stuff that I write. I don't ever want to give my writing to someone else. I don't want to see them change it and make it different. Because my, as a director, my job is to take what was on the page and give it life, really bring it to life. So really to honor that writer in me. So that's the director's job is to go, okay, well, Tarun, the director, his job is to really do justice to Tarun, the writer. Can I do that? And so, yeah, I love that. I love the writing process. Can you pinpoint a time in your life where you became interested in filmmaking? Yes. So, um, probably middle school. So, you know, you, you may not know a ton about Bollywood. Bollywood's a big part of our culture. It's our film industry in in, Houston, in uh, India. And so my parents always watched Bollywood movies, always did too. I watched everything, I watched everything. I, I just never realized that this is something I could have done. But my entire life, I watched everything. I watched everything in Hollywood, watched everything in Bollywood. I watched the, the, the B-grade action movies, you know, the Chuck Norris, like straight to DVD stuff, the Steven Seagal movies, and then the, whatever the equivalent was in India, the, the, the stuff that was not the top end tier stuff. I just loved watching everything. And I, I didn't realize it till later, but when I watched the bad movies, I learned more from the bad movies than I learned from the good movies. Because I'd look at the bad movie and go, well, that sucks, but if they would have just changed up this, this, and this, the movie could have been fine or you know they casted this person wrong if they would have casted this better you would have had a much better movie and um it wasn't until when i got to college i, I you start to ask yourself those questions what, what do i want to be what do i want to do for the rest of my life and uh, i had a guidance counselor who went what's the thing you've always enjoyed doing the most and i went watching movies with my mom to be honest that's all that's that's what i really enjoy doing my mom loved movies my um, dad did too, but I think I spent more time watching movies with my mom because she'd watch even the bad ones. My dad would be like, all right, I'm not going to watch the bad ones. Um, but I'd sit there and watch it with her and I'm going, oh, this is so bad because, but you know, if they would have changed this and this and this, it would have been so much better. And that was it. And once I realized that I made that connection, that was it. I was like, filmmaking is what I've always wanted to do. So your films have won awards at film festivals. What was that like the first time? your film won an award. Man, that was cool. That was, um, 
So normally I've done comedies. That the, I always feel like that's the therapeutic thing that the world needs more of is just good comedies. So and and I'm a pretty light and happy-go-lucky guy. So comedies. Um, and so when my last comedy, it was called Divorceish. It was about <clears throat> two people um, that are going to show up to you know the attorney's office to, to finalize their divorce. However, there's a little tricky clause in the prenup that says they have to sit in the room for an hour before they can finalize the divorce right comedy so essentially what happens is in that hour they start fight, bickering and fighting with each other and it's all a comedy and that one ended up winning awards and it was just cool to see that recognition because again I didn't go to film school I'm self-taught um, it's very validating it's very encouraging to get awards and you know it's not like that movie went to Tribeca or Sundance but you know it won at smaller film festivals it just gives you that confidence it actually gave me the confidence to make conception and that's you know where I'm at right now I'm on the verge of you know we're done with conception it's about to start its film festival run it's a feature film hopefully we get this on a streaming platform I mean I don't think I would have had the confidence to to make that if it wasn't for these previous films and even before divorceish I had a film called therapy which was about um, a son and a mother from the from the from the old country, they go into a traditional American therapist's office to work out their issues. Slapstick comedy, and um, that one didn't win any awards, but it was awesome. I was at a, 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 I was at a film festival, and there was a director who won an Academy Award back in 1985. And he saw mine, he saw my film, and it was like a 10 minute film. He goes, kid, you got something. He's like, you know how to write like comedy. You, you, do you realize how hard that is? And I was like, you don't need to say this like I you know you're you're an accomplished dude like you don't need to say this to me and he goes no you got something here keep going you know it's it's those little things when people say that to you right it's just such great just energy to have inside to manifest inside of you like that to have in there so that came and then divorceish came and then I started winning awards and so it's it's always been a step you know it's been a ladder to get to where I am and but you you need those confidence boosters along the way. Otherwise, you don't. You don't just get there, you know. So right, overnight success. Is, yeah. It happens, but it's uh, it's very, very rare. Yeah, and probably not as fun either, right? Because you, maybe you get a false sense of security. Wow, I'm really good at this, and then nothing happens after that. So. Exactly. But you're you've gone through the process. So yeah. after winning awards, you started to attract investors. How do you go about pitching a film idea to an investor? Or how do you attract investors? Maybe broaden that question a little bit. Gotcha. Oh, that's a that's a great question. So, I think that's a question that I think a lot of filmmakers want to hear. I don't think that I have a great answer for it because I can only tell you what happened with me. And what happened with me was, you know, like any good cocktail, it's one one part luck, one part you know being in the right position, and one part just having the product. And so, um, conception was originally meant to be uh, a short. Uh, we were supposed to a shot during the pandemic, right when everything shut down. So I had to use local actors and everything like that. Um, and there was, really wasn't much money that I could get for it at all. Um, and so it was all going to be self-financed. So I went, okay, instead of me sitting around trying to pool together enough money to do it, let me just let me just front it out of my pocket. Um, and so we ended up making the short. Turned out to be fantastic. Um, and, I'll, and I'll go into the filmmaking end of it a little bit later. I'll just stick to this part for now. Um, once the film was done, you know, it was 26 pages. So you anticipate the movie should be about 20 to 30 minutes. Well, the movie turned out to be 45 minutes <laughs> due, due to pacing, due to the acting. Uh, my films are incredibly dialogue intensive. Heavy, heavy. So it turned out to be 45 minutes. And so when I showed it to people, they go, this is good. Uh, but kiddo, this isn't a short film. <laughs> This is half of a movie. Right. So they go, this is your ammunition. You go into rooms saying, I'm not pitching you on a trailer, which is what happens in the industry, right? You go make a trailer, you go pitch it to the big stars or the big production companies and go, hey, listen, you know, we, we spent $10,000 on this trailer. Give us, you know, 500000 to go make the movie. I already had half a film done. And I did it on a skimp budget. Um, I mean, it just... A lot of people were just free during COVID. So I kind of got a COVID discount. And that discount didn't, was, you know, you're never going to get that again. So whenever I talk about when things happen in the world, you take advantage of those opportunities and, and, and what happens in the world because you may not get those advantages again. So I, I got the COVID discount for it and I was able to get a lot out of, uh, for 
the very little that I put in. And I put in a lot more than I should have. I had a budget of this, but as I saw the actors doing everything, I looked at my wife and, and you know, when you're married, it's not a one person decision. Yes. <laughs> so my wife was looking at the actors and she goes, yeah, you got to put in more. It's good. It's good. And I was like, do we want to make a, a piece of crap or we want to make something good? She goes, I hey, put in the money. It's fine. And every time the budget go up and up and up, but I'd show it to her. I'd go, babe, babe, look, hey, this is good. This is, you know, this is where we need to be going. And she goes, yeah, all right, fine. So we ended up going way over budget on, on you know, what was comfortable for us. The film turned out great. You know when they tell you, you bet on yourself? That's what conception was. I bet on myself. I put in way more than I should have. The film turned out great. And because of it, I wasn't pitching a short. I was pitching half a movie to investors. So when they saw that, they go, and, and the movie itself was good. And I went, this is technically second half of the movie. I need money to make the first half of the movie to really, really tell the story properly. I mean, for what the purposes of the short was, it was fine. But IVF, I don't know how much you know about in vitro fertilization, it's a very complicated process. To be able to tell a, film, a short story on that is just not possible. You, you need time. You need an hour and a half, two hours to tell a story. So investors, it was an easy sell to them. And how they fell into my lap, just dumb luck. You know, you, they, they tell you, what's the business thing to tell you? You know, your net worth is your network or whatever. You know, your network is, is yeah, that thing. So, and so I just knew the right people. They got me in touch with other people and... Um, Sure enough, somebody looked at the movie poster, looked at the film, and they went, yeah, we'll cut a check for this. And that was it. So within about three months of me finishing the short, I already had the money to, to make the feature. So knock on wood, it was just, everything just aligned really well. This movie is just really special for that reason. And so then that's it. So last year, we, we hurried into production. I was like, it's a year later. Actors are going to start looking different. The world's opening up again. We may not have the same opportunities. We got everyone back together. Luckily, everyone saw the short and was like, Tarun, you sold us. Because again, I was a no-name director. I still am. Um, but point is, when people see what you're doing, they then believe. You need them to believe. So when they saw the short, all, also the same crew came back. I wanted continuity across the board. Uh, I, want, I was like, DP, Gaff, Sound, all, all of them came back. They went, you got something good. Let, let's finish what we started, man. Actress too. They were like, we're on board. I was like, you need to eat some peanuts. You need to gain some weight. You lost a bunch of weight. Can't have you do that. Another my other actor, he like bulked up. And I was like, I need you to shed it all down. You don't look the same. Um, so we, we did that. And, um, you know, we, we wrapped, I think, in October of 2021. And we've been editing since. And we are just now finished. Yeah. So. The other moral to that story, which may be cliche to some, but you know, you're saying that every every investment story is unique and maybe not something that everybody can pull from. But what I pull from that is preparation meeting opportunity. Correct. When that happens, good things happen. You were prepared, the opportunity presented itself, mm -hmm. and look where you are now. Yep. And and that's that's the key. Approach your films both as a business person and as a as a creative. That's one thing that when I, if I could go back in time and tell myself that at 18, 19 would be learn a little business first, understand money, um, because I have to produce too, which means I have to balance budgets. So now I have to pool from the other world that I live in, pooling a budget. It's like a pop-up restaurant when you make a movie. You have a budget, you gotta make sure everything comes in under budget, it happens wham, bam, 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 and you're done in three months, right? And you can't go over budget. So. Um, it, you're right. You have to be very, very organized. You have to be very planned, especially in the in the low budget world. You know, we're not sitting on Disney Marvel budgets here where we can mess up and reshoot, reshoot, reshoot. Right. Um, so I had to be incredibly calculated with where the money went, what scenes had money, which scenes did I cheap out on? And I went, we're going to stick to the basics here and other ones. Hey, we can grab a bunch of extras. We can pay for locations and things like that. It's um, have you ever seen Moneyball with Brad yeah, Pitt. Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. That's the whole concept. It's money ball, putting money where it counts and then also being smart. A lot of directors are like, this is my vision and that's it, right? That That's not feasible. And, and I've seen those directors not go very far because of it, because they don't. It's not about compromise. It's always going to be a compromise. It's about, like you said, being prepared. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. absolutely. You mentioned earlier, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about filmmaking itself. Let's let's go there. Yeah. So. We just meet. Hey, man, I've always been interested in making a film. You're a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I know it's kind of a loaded question, but tell me about what, what should I know? What should I know about filmmaking? 
what aspect of it? Writing, directing, acting, producing, what fascinates you to it? That would be my question. Yeah, uh, good question. Well, um, I have a story idea and I think it would make a good movie. So, um, and I enjoy writing. So I, I think I could learn how to screenwrite to start off. Gotcha. So for that purposes, if you, I would say pick up a book. I, I did read one screenwriting book, and after that, I haven't read anything since then. Um, but you have to understand how to put a, a story into an act one, two, and a three. What does act one need to have, two need to have, three need to have? Obviously, it's a creative process, so no three acts are going to be the same across any film. But that's what fundamentally the backbone of every story is. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you got to think about those in broad terms. Don't, don't, don't get into the nitty-gritty, right? Let's just take something as easy as like a, a John Wick, right? Man, you know, gives up the life. He's living with his wife, right? His wife dies. That's act one. Act two is he's now provoked. He now, you know, he reverts back to a character he used to be, this killer, right? And then the third act is resolving, you know, who the bad guy was, the aggression was. So basic three acts. So you take any story you want to take, um, whether it's a drama, comedy, etc., Break it up into those three acts. Does it make sense first? Don't write anything down. That's what I do. I, I don't. A lot of people will put um, sticky notes up on a wall and they'll start stringing stuff left and right. I don't do that. I go right here and I'll go, does your first and second and third act make sense yet? If you tell me the beginning to the end, will it make sense of a story? Or are you going to sit there and you're going to stumble and bumble a lot? And if you are, then you, you haven't really fleshed out your story yet. That's where you start. Okay. So I've got my screenplay written. I'm going to fast forward <laughs> okay. amazingly right. fast okay. through the process, which I know is unrealistic. But let's just say I've got the screenplay written. I'm talking to everybody I can, pitching my idea. Would you go see a movie like that? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I got a solid story. May have a pretty good screenplay. May not. What do I do now? Okay, money. We've got to talk money, right? Um, if you're going to direct it yourself, you now have to figure out how to direct, right? You have to figure out how much money am I going to need to pull off what I've written, right? If you wrote these massive scenes, if you have a scene going on in like an orchestra hall or whatever, whatever, those are expensive scenes. Now, if it's just two buddies shooting the ish and they're in their room, well, that's a cheap scene. You can pull that off with just good acting and good script, right? So you have to break down your script and go, how much is this thing going to cost? So you either take it to a producer or you figure out yourself, or as I have through making several films, I've realized where how much money can get me where? How much gas will it give me? Um, you have to figure that out, right? Um, it's, it's, just, it's The film industry is hard, right? Yeah. So if you're going to go get money and you're pitching it out, I've, I've been that route. It's very, very difficult. Um, depending on the economy, um, people have expendable income to put into movies. Sometimes they don't. Um, but really, that's where you're going to start. You're going to look at money and you're going to go, okay, do I, have, do I have enough money to pull this off myself? If you do, you proceed forward and you go, okay, well, how much of these skill positions can I do myself, right? Um, can I do writing? Can I do editing? Can I do DPing? What, which, which one of these can I handle? And then when you realize, okay, well, I can't shoot, so I need a shooter. Got to figure out how much he's going to cost. Uh, if you're not a director, you don't have a director's mind, you got to figure out how much a director's going to cost, right? Then it just gets down into money stuff, figuring out how much it's going to take for you to execute your vision and... Then you put it in the hands of a, a producer who will sit there and line item everything for you and go, all right, this scene's gonna probably cost you this much. This scene's gonna cost you this much. Here's how many days of shooting you have. Each day of shooting, you bring people out to shoot. That's money. Um, and every second that you're running on set, it's money going out the, the window. So you gotta be, you gotta figure all that out. Yeah. So now I've got it written. I've got funding for it. Now I need actors. Or what is the next step? Is it casting? Is it getting your, your crew together? What I get the crew for? together first. Okay. I, I, well, I can go either way. You, you can cast first. So, there's, you know, there's plenty of uh, Facebook groups. Uh, they have official casting sites um, that you can go to and you put out your cast call. You know, I need a male of this age, of this ethnic background. Here's the type of character they're going to play. They're going to play a super aggressive whatever. Or I need a, it's a female action film. So I need, you know, a female from this age to this age who has action experience. And you put that out there and you start. Then this is where things start to get fun. Because then you get submissions from actors and then you start to realize, uh, you start to go through their tapes and go, does this person fit my film now? Mm -hmm. Now you get back to filmmaking, right? So it's, it's a constant stop and go of like, oh, I got to do the business stuff and I don't want to do that versus, oh, now it's the fun part. 
now I get to cast. Now I get to find someone who fits this person and see if they lift off the page, you know? Like, let's let's call her, like, you know, Jasmine or something. and Or Katie. It's like, that girl embodies everything Katie should be. That's fantastic. That's, what I, that's who I want. Cast. And then after that, you go to the crew. Figure out your crew. What do you need? Do you need action? Do you need action choreographers? What do you need to make your film, right? Um, and then, you, yeah. So those are the next two processes. You can kind of interchange those. You could either find the crew first. If you have a very intensive crew film, uh, then you need to do that first. Like, say you got a lot of special effects and things like that in the film, you should probably have that planned first before you bring on the actors. But if you're shooting kind of like a horrible bosses type comedy or something, you don't really, there's no special effects needed. You just need to find locations and you need good actors so the crew can come last. So, so you shoot the film and like you said, with conception, you're in the editing process right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm gonna, now I've shot the film, I'm gonna edit my film. Um, that's something I probably wouldn't do. Um, but I want to know about it, so I want to sit on that process just to learn about it and also see what's going on with my movie that I've just shot. Right. Um, but I've got to I've got to get these investors paid back too. So, is are, are those steps working in tandem, or in, are are these processes working in tandem, or am I am I trying to compartmentalize it too much, or how does that work? What's the end game? I guess is what I'm asking. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, the way it works is if you are independently funded, right? You generally don't have distribution locked up from the beginning. Now the big guys, the big boys, the Leo DiCaprios, and, and if you're in the industry, you generally lock down distribution to begin with. So this way, your investors already know that the movie's going to pay out, right? So that that's the big thing. Now I. I'm not there yet, but I know that that's how it works because I have my colleagues do that that are in, in, in higher places than I am. They already know that they got to deal with National Geographic to make this or even better, you have better stars, it's National Geographic giving you the money to make the film. So, you know, already, you know financially you're set. You just don't go over budget, right? But on the independent circuit, yeah, you've pulled in finan- financiers. These are people that want to return or it's your money on the line. Um that's the beauty of distribution now. There's so many avenues open, which is why I'm super, super excited to get this film out there because there's so many things you can do with it. Yeah, you can go to Netflix, you can go to Hulu, you can go to Amazon, go try to get a deal with them. Um, you have middle-tier distribution uh, companies, uh, production companies like Leonardo DiCaprio's production companies. They're always buying smaller films, and what they'll do is they'll come in, they'll recut it, they'll cut a trailer to it, and then they essentially resell it they're kind of almost like a broker in a way, if you think about it. They'll sell that movie to Netflix and they'll put their name on it, you know? Like, you know, it'll be, say, directed by me, but produced by Leo DiCaprio or Matthew McConaughey or whatever, right? And then, you know, there's a money model behind all of it that, that kind of works. But a guy like me can't walk into Netflix. So you need a Matthew McConaughey or someone to go, hey, 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 you should, you should look at this guy's movie. And in fact, I'm putting my name on this movie. And Netflix will go, done. Great, good movie, your name's on it, it can sell, boom. So you either try to pitch it to these production companies of sort of famous people who, who have done this, whose movies have get acquired, or you go to big film festivals, right? You go to Tribeca, Sundance, uh, you got Toronto International Film Festival, any one of these, con. And if your movie gets in, it is almost guaranteed your stars are gonna change for the most part. Um, then all of a sudden, you don't need the Matthew McConaughey's of the world. You don't need the stars. You don't need these big production companies. You can deals get struck there too. But now all of a sudden, Netflix will go sit down, son. I want to talk to you. We saw your movie here at Sundance. This is fantastic. We want to buy it. You know, right, and or they'll give you a deal for the future, or the big guys will come to you. Like some of these bigger guys, the Leo DiCaprio will go, man. I, the president of my production company saw your film. It's fantastic. We want to acquire your movie. And then we will get it on Netflix for you, or we'll get it on Xfinity on demand, or whatever, and boom. So it's it's a very multi-layered process, and or you go the self-distribution route. There are platforms like obviously YouTube you can monetize on. Tubi is a is a platform you can monetize yourself on. I could just throw the movie out there, and you get kind of pay-per-clicks or, or view times. So there's no one way to make money anymore, which is great for independent filmmaking. I think now more than ever, you don't have to stick to this traditional model anymore, the way that we did, where it's like, please give me money, and then hopefully we get a deal and you get your money back. Now there's so many avenues to do it. And so again, don't be scared, just venture out, make your movie, and then afterwards, have the mentality of, well, we'll figure it out now. There's so many platforms open. If you make a good movie, 
it will find a home and it will make some money. Mm. So, well, you've inspired me. I'm all in. (laughs) (laughs) Are you in any of your films? Do you act? So yes, uh, unfortunately I am in my, in my own movies. Um, Unfortunately, why do you say that? I, I don't like acting. It, really? it, of all the different skill positions in film, the writing, producing, directing that I do, I don't like acting. Acting is one of those things I do out of necessity sometimes. So, you know, we, we can't cast a certain role. If I wrote it, I can play it. You know, that's generally what it is. And so, um, and also I like to keep my sets kind of uh, lean. So that's one less person I got to deal with on set if I'm having to jump in. So my first feature I did, I was actually the lead of it. Hated it. Don't ever, I didn't want to do it. Divorce-ish, I play one of the attorneys. Um, in therapy, I was the main guy. And luckily in this movie conception, I have probably the most smallest role to date. And it is minuscule. I, I show up in two little scenes, got a couple of lines. Thank you, goodbye, I'm out of here. The movie is not about me at all, and I'm hoping each and every movie I make from here on out, I don't need to use me. I can afford better and better actors, and I'll just be a Stan Lee from now on, where I just pop in and go, hey, and that's it. That's what I want for myself as an actor moving forward in my own movies. Yeah, get to uh, Alfred Hitchcock, a little cameo here and there. Just cameos. That's all I want, cameos. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So what is, you're in the editing process right now with Conception. It's going to be. It's done, in, actually. It's done. Oh, the uh, editing's yeah, done. Yeah, the so editing you're... is done. We sent it out to a color studio in, in uh, L.A. The film is colored. It looks beautiful. The sound is being finished up as we speak. The, uh, the scoring is done. So the film, I think, will probably finish within the next 48 hours uh, from now. So wow. by the time people listen to this podcast, the film will be done. This is real-time uh, stuff. Then. This is real-time stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we've already begun, like, Looking at film festivals, we lined them up, which ones we're going to submit to, and yeah, we're starting that whole process. And then same with distribution. In a couple of weeks from now, we'll start pitching this out to distribution uh, homes and things like that and platforms going, hey, you know, potentially we want a deal, we want to win awards, we want to make some money, let's go now. Like, you know, this is a really good film. It's, it's touching, it's sweet, it's funny. I think we have something really special here with yeah. this movie. If you could draw a perfect picture for yourself, moving forward in the future would filmmaking would that be a hundred percent of what you'd want to do with your life that's the dream yeah if i could i got so many stories just floating around up here if i could just spend the rest of my life turning all these stories into realities that would be phenomenal and that's what i'm going to work towards um with everything that i'm doing with businesses and all that it's just so one day i could just just do this full time. I just and I'm I want to make Jai Time Productions my production house, a legitimate production company here in this city. We I want to get it well funded. I want to bring in enough uh, outside investments, not into a film, but into the company to where we're doing shows, movies, etc. I still think I have a lot to prove to, before I can get there, but that is the ultimate sort of goal for myself is to get this production company off the ground and and we have a first look deal with Netflix or something, and so. I can bring in financiers like that going, I have a first look deal with Netflix. These guys are going to get first look on this project. So your money is almost guaranteed as long as I don't, you know, uh, do a bad job. So that's the dream. Yeah. That's awesome. I see that happening. Uh, I see that happening for you, Tarun. I really do. I really do. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed awesome. every minute of it. Me I anticipated too. it a lot, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, definitely uh, was beyond my expectations. A fa- fascinating career you have. And, Thank you. And uh, just the whole filmmaking process was very cool to talk about. So this brings us to what we call on your crown our, our legacy question. Okay. And um, that is, if say in 50 years, give or take, someone is listening to this recording, what message do you want to leave for them how do you want to be remembered basically as someone who always was calculated i was always trying to be as prepared as possible it goes back to what you said earlier when opportunity meets preparation i have always understood that if i try to prepare 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 enough that when that opportunity comes i don't let that opportunity go or i don't miss the mark right I want to make sure that that opportunity is there and I can succeed 100%. You never want to be you never want to be underprepared for a situation. And that's it. And these these opportunities that can change your stars happen so few in our lives, you know? Um, you can probably look back at your life and go, "Yeah, you know, at this age this thing happened, this thing happened and this thing happened." 
that could have changed my stars and did change my stars if you took advantage of them or if things fell the right way. You just want to make sure that you're as prepared as possible. And do the homework, do the research, build yourself, do whatever you need to do to be prepared so that when that opportunity comes, you are ready for that next level and it changes your life. That's it. Excellent. Great words to live by. Tarun, thanks again for being a guest on your Cron. That was a, absolutely uh, that was a great time. Really appreciate it. all the best to you and and you know all the best to uh, Conception and all the other films that come after. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you.